Welcome to the 93rd episode of BoagWorld.com, the podcast for those involved in designing, developing and running websites on a daily basis. And we're, we're on location today. Well, that's weird. I'm in the same room as Paul. Can't cope. We're looking at one another. Look at me. Ah, it's scary. <laughs> we used to do this. I know, we did. Yeah. We used to do one every other week as well. Yeah. Uh, well, no, we did two, two, two episodes in one go. I hated doing that. Yeah. The second one was always crap, wasn't it? It was like... <laughs> I uh, don't care anymore, let's just finish this and get it done. Especially when we got halfway through it and realised it wasn't recording properly and had to start again. Yeah, those were in the days before before I was on the Mac. Yes. And now it's all alright. It's well, easy. Let's hope so. Eh? See, look, you can see it going along. I can show you my screen. It's wonderful. It's good. <sighs> I like being in the same room. I wish we could do it more often, to be honest. Well, yeah. We could commit ourselves to going into the office once a week. We can't record in there, though. Well, we could, yeah, but we can have a meeting room. So, anyway, people don't really care about this, do we? Do they? They don't care about anything we say at the start of the show. We can talk about anything you like. I know because they just fast forward through this bit. Absolutely. It's really good. So, so how are you? I'm alright. A little bit kind of whew, too, too much. It's September and everybody wants everything and less, you know, proposals and contracts and lots of stuff. Mind you, I'm not going to Ireland like you are. No, I am off to Ireland. And on on uh, Thursday and Friday, I was down in Brighton at mm-hmm. Deconstruct, which was. Absolutely excellent. I'm going to give a bit of feedback on that in the news section. But I'll tell you one thing. I met a lot of Boagward listeners. Did you really? It was really funny. Did you Be- say, make sure you vote for us at South by Southwest? No, I didn't do that. <laughs> Big bad. Panelpicker.mssw.com. On your T-shirt. Yes. Walk around. Vote for me. Yes. So search, <laughs> on, search on Paul Boag and you'll find our... Um, yes, anyway. Uh, no, but it was quite interesting. People recognised me by my voice, obviously in preference to my gorgeous face. And, um, yes, which was cool. But i tell you what it did do. Oh, I had a really good comment. One one woman walked past me and said, oh, you're Paul Bag, aren't you? Which was funny enough. She said, And then she said, I go to sleep with you. Well, hey. <laughs> I didn't know quite how to take that. I think it was more that I sent her to sleep rather uh, than anything dodgy. You missed an opportunity by the sounds of it there, Paul. I did, but I was queuing for food at the time, and that was far more important. No, yeah, I, that's about the only <laughs> thing I could possibly understand. Yeah. Food and... Yeah. Yes, and drink. You're worse than me. Yes. No, I'm worse than... No, way. So anyway, so what it did do is it made me really excited about the 100th episode. Good. It's going to be so cool. I'm really looking forward to it. So we're going to... Um, we'll be doing this. We will be. Just It'll like be really this. cool. And then we'll be, there'll be people, yeah. hopefully. We'll need a third microphone. So other people can... The roaming mic. Yes, we need to put someone in charge of roaming with the mic. So that's I'm just while I'm thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> live on the on the show. Yeah, we need to get a radio mic. I can get one. Ooh, good. Mm. You reckon that's the easiest way rather than that? Well, yeah, otherwise, huge long lead. Oh, that's true. For your audience. Yeah, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah, so that's going to be good. I think that's going to be a really good show. And if they're anywhere near as rude as they were to me while I was deconstructed, it should be entertaining. <laughs> uh, 
It's like they think they know me, like they have some... You think you know me, listener, but you don't. I'm a sensitive flower. Yeah, he comes across really nice on air, yeah. <laughs> oh, ask <laughs> you. Um, just a quick uh, little thing I want to say a bit of housekeeping is I want to um, apologise to people for um, the forum. We're having some problems with the forum at the moment, which is a bit of a pain. Um, yeah, it's performance problems with MySQL or something, but we're working on it. So if you're using the forum, I do apologise. Well, so well, while we're at it, I apologise for the quality of Paul's interview last week. Why? What was wrong with my interview last week? Not the, not the quality of the questioning, the quality of the audio. Oh, was yeah, it a bit dodge? Hard work. Oh, well, here we go. Um, such is life. Yeah. I don't really care. Um, I've, got, <laughs> I've got something I want to play for people. Hello, Paul. Hello, Marcus. This is Derek Oyen calling in from Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I would like to offer you some linguistic help, Paul, with your pronunciation of the word innovative. Since you've taken a new pro-American approach to life, I'd like to suggest you try the American pronunciation of the word. Instead of a soft A, innovative, I suggest you try the hard A, innovative, next time you come across the word. Good luck. Keep up the podcast. I like the show. Peace out. If you say innovative, Paul, I will kill you. No. I'm not going to do that, so don't worry about it. And to be honest, I don't think I could say it any easier than in no... No, I can't say it. I just give up. But thank you very much, um, Derek, for sending through that comment. Very useful. Okay, so on to today's show, what we're going to cover. So, um, our, what have we got lined up? Marcus, what are you doing in your bit? Um, I'm going to talk about why cold calling never works. Oh, So there you go. That sounds like it might be fun, and also very true. Yeah, although by the end of it, well, you decided you actually sometimes it does. But there you go. Okay, so you back down. To that, yeah. yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, in my really s- staying on the fence, you know me. Yes. Okay. Um, in my section, we're going to talk about footers. <laughs> <laughs> How exciting is that? Yes, and making the most of your footer. Right. Okay. So it sounds like it's going to be a really good show today. <laughs> Fortunately, we've got Gary Marshall on the show, right. who is a, um, a tech journalist um, and obviously writes a lot. And he's going to talk about, he's coming on to talk generally about writing better copy and uh, oh, creating better content. So that's a good section. So there you go. But obviously, before we get on to all of that good stuff, we need to start off with our news. Okay, so the news. This is the news. First news story. From the BBC. First news story is uh, uh, Apple and its new range of iPods. Have you seen the new range of iPods? I haven't actually seen any. I've heard about them. Okay, so uh, let's let's bring them up. Yeah, I'm going to bring them up. Because we're actually sitting together. It seems a good opportunity to actually bring stuff up and show you. Yeah, so there's uh, Apple have released a really good new range of um, iPods. There are, um, here's the range. So then now at the bottom, there's the iPod Shuffle, which is basically the same as it was before. Mm-hmm. Next up is this kind of squat iPod Nano, which looks damn ugly in my opinion. It's like a funny shape, but um, it is very thin apparently. So that now plays video, which the iPod yeah, Nano didn't. It didn't before, did it? No. I so so that your, your daughter is going to want that. Yeah. Probably your son too. <clears throat> Next one up is the iPod Classic which is the iPod video as it was before. Pretty much the same as it was before, slightly different user interface, but uh, most significantly now with a 160 gig hard drive. Mm-hmm. But that's, this is where it gets really interesting, the iPod Touch. The iPod Touch is basically the iPhone without the phone. 
So it's got Wi-Fi built into it. It's got full-blown browser. It's got contacts. It's got all kinds of really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think for us as web designers, this is going to be hugely significant. The reason being is that basically every person that buys, you know, an iPod, which is, let's face it, a hell of a lot of people, mm. is going to have a full-blown Safari browser and Wi-Fi-enabled stuff in their pocket, basically. So how much is the iPod Touch, then? Um, the same price, I believe. <clears throat> well, let's find out. Yeah. I think it's the same price as the, the normal iPod is at the moment. Uh, let me just bring it up. But the classic's getting cheaper and that one's staying the same. Yeah, I'm, I'm right. pretty sure, but let me just check. Um, from £199. Yeah, you're right. So, I mean, that is very, very affordable. And it means that it's going to be so kind of, basically the mobile web's going to be so ubiquitous, everybody's going to have it. What would be really cool is if it had a phone on it as well. <laughs> yeah, that's called an iPhone. We have to wait for that. Yes. Um, so, I think this is going to be in- incredibly significant. Because I just the the other there is another aspect to this. Um, so not only is now everybody going to have a really good um, mobile web browser for when they're out and about, um, which I think can be very useful. You know, especially reaching that kind of demographic group, but you know the the kind of teenage demographic group. But also, I think it's significant because of a deal that Apple has struck with Starbucks. Okay. Oh right. So. Starbucks are always playing music, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're walking past a Starbucks or in, you're in a Starbucks or whatever else and you hear a song and go, ooh, I like that, you can open up your um, iPod Touch or indeed your iPhone um, and it's going to um, tell you what the last 10 songs are playing in like a, a, you know, like a playlist. Yeah. Um, and you can click on that, uh, that, the song that you're listening to that you really like and buy it there and then instantly. And I think what this kind of opens up is I think you'll see more and more of this kind of thing. Mm. And it it doesn't need to be, once these, these iPods, are, you know, everybody's got them, it doesn't even need to be the big players that do this. You could do it on a very small level. So, for example, um, let's say you're a university. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got, you know, campus-wide um, Wi-Fi already set up anyway. So what you do is you set it up so that um, it, it detects if it's a, an iPod or indeed you could do it with any device, mm. and it goes to a, to a special homepage which has got you know um, whatever information you want to convey. So anybody any t- anybody walks into the university, they can instantly I don't know say get a map of the campus and mm. how to find your way around and all that kind of stuff. But not even it doesn't even need to be just universities. I mean, you could be running a little cafe for crying out loud. If you open up free Wi-Fi, it's easy to set it up to go to a you know a homepage that says whatever you want about the cafe. She puts the menu on there, or you know it's endless. If you you know, and how much does it cost to set up a little Wi-Fi network? I mean, we, you know, everybody has it in their house for crying out loud. Yeah, no, it costs next to nothing. So I think we're suddenly going to see some incredible advances in, in what's you know what's possible. This is one of those things that it'll it needs to kind of reach the point where people expect it. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, at the moment nobody will expect it, so no, no one will even look. Yeah, but they'll expect it once they start getting it in Starbucks. Starbucks is the yeah, that's the key at the moment. Um, and you know, people you can put up posters or whatever saying that it's available. Hmm. Um, and people are going to have these iPods, and once they've got an iPod with Wi-Fi, they're going to be looking for Wi-Fi. Hmm. You know, and I think it will naturally grow from there. So I really think this is going to be extremely quick. I think by the end of next year. 
um, you know, there's going to be an expectation for this kind of stuff, which means that people need to start thinking. I mean, how long have I been saying people need to start thinking about the mobile web? Yeah. Well, you re- really, really, really do now. So, yeah. I mean, that that's a really cool one. I'm, I'm very, very excited about that. I'm looking forward to getting involved in it. So that's cool. Right. Next news story up. Yeah, is um a, 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 a funny little website that I've come across. Um which is uh, bighugelabs.com forward slash Flickr. Right. Okay. And what this has is it's got absolutely loads of, of um, different kind of uh, applications that they've built, all of which are free, and you can pull your Flickr photos in, or in some cases even upload stuff. So, for example, they've got a badge maker, so you can make, like, ID badges with photos <laughs> yeah. and stuff on. Okay, not very useful, that one. But some of them are much more useful. For example, um, there's a palette generator. So you can upload a photograph, and it will generate a colour palette based on that photograph, that which is, is really cool. cool. Very cool. cool. Yeah. Um, you've got other ones uh, where you can hockneyize uh, a photograph, <laughs> where you can make it look like... Or a, wall, a Warhol photo, you know, style Surely photograph. Surely that's a filter in Photoshop already. No, it's not, actually. <laughs> Um, you can make mosaics out of photographs that you've got. Um, and this is quite an addictive game they've got, um, which is... Oh, no, I, th- I don't think it's that one. It might be a different one. So you, you have a photograph. Um, it shows you a random photograph from one of your friends on Flickr. Right. And you have to guess who the friend is based on the photograph. So you're, kinda, you're going things like, ooh, well, that's... Uh, yeah, it's not very well taken, so it's probably from Marcus, you know, that kind of thing. Ooh. Um, <laughs> so there's loads and loads and loads of slideshows, photo walls. I mean, I haven't checked out half of these. Galleries, all kinds of, yeah, all right, stop showing me your pretty, that does look an amazing beach. You showed me a picture of the, the beach that he's, was that? Mm. Wow. Nice. Huh? Cool. <laughs> hey, they're talking about cool beaches. Did you Have you been watching Tribe? Oh, it's a TV program on BBC Two, I think it is. And it's about a guy that goes and spends time with these tribes uh, all around the world um, and kind of learns their culture and stuff. And honestly, he went to the most idyllic island in the middle of the Pacific, and these people live the most idyllic life where they, they share everything together. Yes, <laughs> let's go there. Let's stop this podcasting. Anyway, that's so check out that check out that website. What was the URL again? It was bighugelabs.com forward slash flicker. Loads of really cool stuff. It's got one called a Flickr DNA that I'm desperate to have a play with now. I've just spotted that. That looks weird. <laughs> mm. So anyway, that's that new story. I thought it'd be good to give a bit of feedback from Deconstruct as yep. well. So so for, um, I went down on Thursday, but Friday was Deconstruct, uh, which is a, a web design conference in Brighton. And uh, some really interesting things came out of, uh, out of that conference, and I wanted to share a couple of them. One was a, um, a talk by uh, Tom Coates. It was the last slot of the day, which is normally the kind of graveyard <laughs> shift. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, he was absolutely brilliant. He was very, very funny. Um, and gave a really good talk um, about kind of changing nature of websites and web content. That when we think about, our, you know, uh, well, I just said it then, you know, when we think about um, what we do on the web, we think about our websites, but actually um, that, that that's changing. And, and uh, he talked about that we should concentrate on the data we've got um, uh, and rather than necessarily... Um, the delivery mechanism mm. and he gave he talked a lot about Flickr and what Flickr do sorry Flickr comes up a lot today mm. um, 
and about how you know uh, there are the, the, because they've opened up their data that you know Flickr is on mobile devices, it's on desktop widgets, it's on you know mm. other websites, it's on their own websites, it's all over the place, and um, and then he also talked about um, so so you've got this item which is a photograph in Flickr, mm. and actually. Um, that's got a huge amount of data that surrounds it. You know, who took it, what camera it was yeah. taken with, what group it is, how it's tagged, what its description is, what its title is. And that they use all of these different things as methods of navigating from one photograph to another. So you can see all of your photographs that are tagged with your name or all photographs that are tagged with any other keyword or all photographs you can search by title and description. You can even go in and actually see all photographs that were taken using the certain S-stop or, you know, whatever, whatever other bizarre method. So you started to talk about kind of different ways of thinking and dealing with your data. So when the podcast comes out, I would highly recommend downloading and listening to that one. But I think what kind of challenged me over it was um, thinking about some of our, our clients and kind of more normal clients and how that kind of applies. So we do a lot of university work. So if you think about courses... Um, you know that they are kind of individual courses and, and actually how those could be pushed out to mobile devices or other things you know how there could be lots of different navigational methods beyond a normal taxonomy mm-hmm. type um, structure so that was an excellent talk there was another one by um, Lisa Reich I've forgotten how to pronounce the surname already Reichelt that looks right yeah sorry Lisa um, not that she listens to the show I doubt but anyway she um <laughs> She talked about um, alternative ways of developing projects. So she talked about the standard approach is wa- the waterfall project um, project structure. Mm-hmm. So where it kind of cascades down. So you start with your, your specification stage and design and build and test, boom, 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 linear. And then she started talking about more kind of agile methods of development where you have short sprints. Um, so you break the project down into little micro tasks that maybe take a couple of weeks or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you go through that entire cycle of specifying that micro task, designing that micro task, building that micro task and testing that micro task. All right, and so you, it's sort of like lots of mini Yes, yeah. And do it kind of in a continual iterative pro- process. Um, and she talked about lots of benefits of it and one benefit that really struck me is it, it keeps and engages the, the team that's working on it because you know designers in particular tend to get bored with things quite quickly <laughs> I think yes. developers do as well but um, and it, it kind of avoids those kind of problems and stuff like that she also talked some of the, um, about yeah, there were loads of business benefits and I'm not going to repeat a whole, whole talk here again download the podcast for that but that really struck me as well that perhaps we need to rethink a little bit about how we run projects and whether we can run projects in a different way to that kind of linear uh, progression that we've inherited from other sources. The only kind of big problem that struck me is, is clients and the client relationship there. And also managing. I mean, I, I may come up. I may be wrong in this, but it struck it would strike me as a dip, more difficult way uh, method of managing people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there are some challenges to it. If you know that designers are going to be working on a project for two weeks and then they can move on to another one and then another one, yeah. rather than, you know, we, we, we want you for one day this week on this project and then a different one, you know. Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. But the other, the, the other part of it is that actually 
you're doing rapid bursts, and this is, this is a nice idea. So instead of the designer doing their designs and then passing it on to the developer, throwing it over the wall to the developer, yeah, so to speak, yeah. everybody sits down together. So the project manager, the designer, the developer, the copywriter, the information architect, whoever else, they do that short burst all together, mm. which is why things get done a lot quicker because there's not the back and forth of, you know, the designer throws it over the wall, the developer doesn't like what it's done and throws it back or, or changes it without even consulting the designer, which is even worse. Yeah. You know, so, so there were a lot of advantages. We, I think really we need to get um, probably Lisa or someone like her on the show to really explain it in detail. Yeah, that sounds good. Because it is a really interesting area. The final one that I wanted to mention from Deconstruct um, was uh, Jared Spool. Jared Spool kicked off the um, uh, Deconstruct did an excellent talk on experience design and about how, um, you know, the, the way that we go about designing things and developing things. And, and um, he made some really, really great points about how more and more uh, people are turning to using experience as the sales tool. So um, for, for a long time, it used to be, you know, uh, the technology was the sales tool, basically. And then, you know, once the technology became fairly, you know, standard and everybody was using the same technology, then it became about features. How many features can you cram into it, to mm. whatever, it, whether it's a website or a product or whatever else. Now, more and more, it's about the experience. And obviously, endlessly, all through the conference, people talked about the iPod as an example of this. Yeah. Um, you know, which isn't, the, it's not got the greatest technology. It's not got, it's actually got less features than many MP3 players but it's, it's so much easier to use that it's become, you know, it's become um, the, the standard, yeah. So he talked a bit about that. He also talked about um, some other cool stuff, um, you know, about how you do good experience design, how it's a very multidisciplinary thing, which dovetail nicely with what Lisa was saying about everybody working together. Yeah. So very good, very, very interesting conference. I actually got loads out of it this year. Last year was perhaps a bit techy for me, but this year was absolutely super. It sounds quite wide ranging. Yeah, well, it, well, no, it was really concentrating on kind of user experience design. Okay. Um, and everything did kind of relate to that, but, you know, some different angles. So, you know, Lisa was looking at it from a very kind of, you know, uh, process angle of development yeah. Jared from very much the, the kind of laying the foundations I guess because he was the first speaker yeah. Tom from a kind of more data perspective but I mean you know some really good stuff there were some other great other talks as well but um, those were the three that stood out to me okay the final um, news story for today uh, is um, from uh, a website called Smashing Magazine which I think we've mentioned before couple of times yeah yeah so they um they did a uh an article recently which they interviewed a load of web designers of which i was one um and they've produced 170 expert ideas for oh, world, i was going to look at this this morning world leading developers yeah <laughs> um and it's it's really good very very good um, especially your ones well, I'm not actually mentioned that much in it this time around. The, the last time they did this, I, I was featured quite heavily, but obviously I wasn't as interesting this yeah, time. No, sorry, you're boring. Yes, you're boring. I'm not going to mention you. So they asked a series of questions, things like, uh, one thing that you do before you start a project, one common mistake... Screen. Yeah. <laughs> one common mistake you Cry. should always avoid um, developing when developing websites. One thing you do... Oh, no, that's the same thing. Oh, that's weird. Oh, I see. So, so there, there are different questions they ask. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, one common mistake you always yeah that should all, ah okay I'll see what they've done here they've split the article down yeah so basically there's loads of different comments um, that you can go through and get some really good tips and it's fascinating to see how other people are working so je- definitely check that uh, that article out there's some uh, there's some cool stuff there okay I think we've spent far too long on the news yeah, we've spent, as ever we've spent seventeen minutes on the news uh, well I think it's because we're both sitting here talking to one another and we're not used to actually so, so. Stop talking now, Paul. Okay. <laughs> okay, cold calling. I guess just to start that, what do I mean by cold calling? Um, I suppose uh, phoning up... Calling people from a fridge. <laughs> yes, yes. Calling someone with the window open. Um, just calling people you don't know at all, you have no connection to whatsoever. I guess that's what I mean. Ah, okay. Um, so um, my, my title here is Why Cold Calling Never Works. Um, and I guess that's a bit strong because... Very occasionally it does. I should also qualify that I'm talking about winning quality web design work here. Uh, So a a more appropriate but considerably more boring title would be Why Cold Calling Almost Never Works When Selling Quality Web Design Services. (laughs) That's not as good. But it doesn't work, does it, though? Um, But I guess in in my opinion, as, as ever, this is all my opinion, you don't even really need to qualify the what you're selling. Uh, I guess there are certain project products or services that can effectively be sold over the phone uh, to someone um, that you don't know, but I expect they're pretty few and far between. Mm. Uh, and, I, and the word effectively in the last sentence is pivotal to this. I'd love to see uh, a ratio of telesales staff costs against actual sales won via that telesales force um, for, say, double glazing, because that's a classic, isn't it? Mm. Um the fact that I seem never to be called these days by people trying to sell me double glazing suggests that um, my suspicions are correct and it doesn't work anymore. Of course, think yourself lucky on getting uh, loads still. Really? I okay. think it's probably your poor credit rating. <laughs> my poor credit rating? Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> you hurt me sometimes, Paul. I'd say. <laughs> no. Anyway, I mean, I, I don't know anyone um, who, who likes being called out of the blue. Uh, and I certainly know no one who's actually bought anything through this process. Have you? No. It just who are these people that keep keep these these businesses going? Do you think do, does anybody actually do this as from a web design point of view? Yes, I bet they do. I'll come on to sort of more. Okay, more, sorry, um, am I skipping ahead? No, 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 no. Uh, I'll, 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 no, no. Let's just talk about that now. I think salespeople, people who are sale, you know, they're not directors of a company or whatever. Right. They're employed to be salespeople feel like they should always be doing something. Right. And, okay, I've, I've chased, followed up my good leads and, well, you know, my mate here who works there who recommended they needed a website. You've done all the good stuff, so I'd better do some cold calling. And chances are you're wasting your time. Yeah. What, what, what I guess I'm saying here. Um, I think most people are instantly on guard when when somebody phones up they don't know. Yeah. They obviously try and sell them something. And basically, they mistrust that person instantly. Yeah. Um, and I think this has worsened over time and has now reached the point where it's almost become a joke, to be frank. Yeah. It's almost like, let's what what game can we play to annoy the, the selly salesperson? Yeah. You know, all this kind of stuff. You, you read or hear about that all the time. But I am rambling. You are. Point, as ever. And mm-hmm. I can go back to website. So, a few points. You can't create a project that doesn't exist. Because effectively, when you're ringing someone up, you're trying to sell them your services rather than a product. We're talking about web design here. So if there is no project, 
no web design yeah. project, then there's nothing to sell. Mm-hmm. That's the main issue, really. Even if you're lucky enough to find a receptive listener, the chances of calling them right at the point when they're thinking about starting a web, a web project is remote. The best you can hope for is that contact will be made later when a real project does happen. I'll come on to that in a bit. Um, also, you may not be talking to the right person. Uh, it's very possible that one, the one successful call that you make that day after banging the phone for eight hours or whatever uh, is to a, actually to a chatty junior who can't make or even influence a decision. Yeah. But you don't know that. No. Uh, and you know, if you go to these sales courses, they tell you you must ask to speak to the marketing manager or whoever the appropriate person is. But again, that puts people's backs up instantly. Yeah. And you're obviously a salesman then. Yeah. And the phone goes down. So, but I guess the positive side of this is that the one good thing that you can get out out from this, I mentioned it briefly there, is making yourself known or your services known, your company known. Um, so you can't actually win work cold calling, uh, but you can occasionally start the process of winning work through a cold call. Um, however, I would say from experience that this this can't be a completely cold call. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong. Um, you need at least one thing connecting you to the person at the other end. And like and the direct mail piece that I sent you two days ago isn't good enough. No, but, um, it has to be a proper a proper connection. And things like these are these are the kind of things I mean. Work done for one of their competitors. So they might not actually know you from Adam, but if you ring up and say, I did work for Company X, it happens to be one of their competitors, yeah. that's a good enough connection to want them to listen. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah, you're serious. Yeah. Fine. Locality, another one, we're in the same town. Yeah. Uh, not such a good one, but there is a relevant thing there because most people, though it's not absolutely necessary, people do like to be close to each other. Yeah. Projects. Um, some kind of professional connect- connection, like uh, you you work with a print designer who happens to work for this company. Again, a little bit tenuous, but you know, if that print print designer is respected within the organisation, blah blah blah. You know, you might be as well. And finally, a social connection, a kind of like my neighbour Dave Smith works for your accounts department. Yeah, recommended I speak to you. Yeah. Um, so those kind of connections, rather than you know, we're really good at what we do. Because anyone anyone can say that. Yeah, yeah. Um, But remember that you're simply selling your professionalism, your skills, competence, that kind of thing. And basically, what you're after is the chance to pitch for work in the future when it comes around. Um, However, I would recommend that the majority of your efforts, efforts, so not cold calling, I would recommend that you spend a on kind of hot calls, yeah, if you like, for to people who who contacted you with real projects because. You still need to talk to them. You need to work on them. You need to, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, sell yourself to them. Uh, and B, probably the biggest group of all of your existing client base because they're virtually always your best prospect. Do you think there's a value in um, cold calling? Say, if you wanted to send out a mail shop because you, you know, you were trying to. Well, I recommend against selling out a mail shop. Okay. Because we've tried it. Yeah, we have, but we're a larger agency. You know, say if you're a, a, a small freelancer that's trying to drum up local work. Local, yeah, the local thing, that's a reason to do it, as I put... Yeah, I'm wondering whether you're better off sending out, um, you know, to, to call out, call somebody up and say, do you mind, you know, not try and ha- do the sale there on the phone, but just say, we don't want to send you junk mail, do you mind if I send you through something on, about what I do? Um, so that when they then get that thing, they're going to have some reference. Oh, yes, you did ask if I could send that through. And if you could... You know, um, couple that with something that 
makes you stand out, something a bit quirky or whatever, yeah, yeah. then yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Um, but as soon as you're just someone else trying to sell something with yeah. no kind of connection, I mean, you, you then know, you're banging your head against the wall. Yeah, I mean, personally, I'm, I, you know, I much prefer the networking approach. Mm. You know, of kind of going to, you know, even if it's like business link events, if you're a small company, I know you're rolling okay. your eyes because you don't like yeah. business link events. Uh, mm-hmm. But these kind of meetup events, you know, I think are much better than picking up and cold calling. Yes, for a smaller organisation, I wouldn't go much better, but they're better. They are better. Yeah, um, you know, so kind of networking is, is seems to be a better way to go, mm. and socialising. It's interesting. It's but net, network with your existing clients, yeah. and get them to talk about who else they work with, and mm. you know, that's the way to go. In my but view. of course, if you really want Marcus's inside track on sales, then you'll need to vote for us for the South by <laughs> Southwest panel. <laughs> Nice one, Paul. At com. But there you go. Have you finished or did you have more? No, that's it. Okay, that's good. Okay, so this week I want to look at the subject of the footer. Despite what Marcus says, this is an exciting subject. Sorry, I'll just be doing some work, Paul. Yeah, you you just get on with your work. Stop it. Stop it now. Okay, so the graveyard, uh, so the footer is very much the graveyard of many websites in my experience. It's the place where links are sent to die, which I think is a very, uh, yes, sad. Um, however, it doesn't need to be that way. So I thought I would try this week to tackle a question that Peter has sent in from Italy. Hello, Paul. Hello, Marcus. And hello to all the listeners of the bagworld.com podcast. I'm Peter, I live in Italy, and today I want to ask you this question. Disclaimer, copyright, accessibility statement, and privacy policy. These are the links that can often be found in the footer of a page. Why is it important to add this information on a website, and what this information should include? Thanks for your help, I appreciate it. Really good question. I um, liked his accent. I like. I liked his accent too. Yeah, <laughs> definitely very cool. Peter, that's not a very Italian name. I know is it? it isn't. Perhaps it. Well, I mean, yeah. that's what he said. Yeah. So anyway, it's a good question. Why do we fill footers with all this stuff? I suspect that the answer is threefold. This is my cunning plan, right? Okay. One reason we do it is that we're lemmings, and that we kind of just do it because everybody else does it on their websites. Yeah. Okay. Right. Second reason is that. Um, in a sense, the only reason a footer exists at all is to finish off the design so it doesn't kind of dribble off the bottom of the page. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Designers put them in because it, it looks neat and tidy. Yes. Um, and the third reason is that the footer is a dumping ground for information that doesn't fit neat, neatly anywhere on the site. And we kind of go, oh, well, what are we supposed to do with this then? And we just kind of shove it in the footer, which... I think it's kind of like, it's because we always, most people like... Um, horizontal top level navigation and you can only fit so much in there yeah so, so you like, don't shove everything else top in the ones to go up there and then <laughs> uh, we've got three more I'll put them down yeah. the bottom I think it is something like that but hey who cares <laughs> yeah that's, that's fine we're fine with it so um, yes this is a little bit of a reactionary ap- approach to kind of uh, yes working on your website and uh, it's probably not very healthy so let's take a step back um, and look uh, what's commonly found on footers and see if we can't find a better solution for working on them. So what is often found in the footer? Let's start by examining what Peter suggested because um, he came up with a fairly comprehensive list there. He talked about um, disclaimers, copyright, privacy policy and accessibility statements. 
So let's first of all look at the kind of legal rambling stuff, um, which is the kind of disclaimer and copyrights. These kind of first two links um, are kind of legal talk, basically, that end up on a lot of sites. Now, generally speaking, these are a waste of time as far as a user is concerned. Um, they, but they have to kind of sometimes appear for legal reasons. Exact um, legislation varies from country to country. So, for example, in the UK, you're supposed to display certain company registration information. However, few people actually give a monkeys about them or care about them. If nobody cares about this information, um, then here's a question. If nobody cares about this information, then why do we link to it from every single page of the site? Good question. Because a footer appears pretty much universally across the whole site. Um, and also, why do we separate them out into to numerous links? So we have a disclaimer I link, agree with that. a copyright link. Legal. Exactly. Yeah, why don't we just mark it legal? So uh, Peter, in his question, um, asked... Uh, if they're, they're, um, that we should have to include these, you know, you know, uh, should we include this kind of information? Um, and to, uh, to be honest, I dare not answer that question for fear of getting myself into legal problems. I am no lawyer, and so it depends on your location, etc. However, I would suggest that there are better ways to do it, and one way to do it might be to, I don't know, write those pages in plain English in preference to legalese because a lot of them some people do yeah there's a lot of really bad ones mine take a leaf out of creative commons um, and the way they write their stuff which Mm. is much easier to understand I suppose this is more about whether where where it should link whether it should be in the footer universally across the yeah I I think that legal stuff should be in the footer because people put it there it's you know it's like searching the top right yeah, except nobody actually look. Nobody, everybody uses search. Nobody looks at the legal information. But if you have to have it, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. My, I mean, my feeling is that yes, it probably should be in the footer because, uh, especially with copyright stuff, you want to you want to state that every page is you know covered by copyright yeah. and make it very clear. But you know, I think yeah. it, it can all be done. Cover all content, yeah. That kind of thing. So, yeah, it's a perfect place for it. Yeah, but I lump it together into one section called legal and try and write it in plain English. Then there's kind of things like privacy policy, and this kind of relates to users' rights. Um, you know, so uh, yeah you know call it instead of calling it privacy policy you know if there's other information that's similar to that um kind of bundle it all together into users rights because it could include things like privacy but also on e-commerce site return policy Mm. cancellation policy those kinds of things so kind of put that all together um unlike legal ramblings um uh, d- depending on the type of site, many users might actually be interested in this information. E-commerce sites in particular, users want to know if they can return yeah. stuff and things like that. Um, so if you're selling stuff on your site or collecting a lot of personal data, then I would consider having this kind of information in the footer. I do think it's important. Accessibility is the next one up. So the final, yeah, so the final item on Peter's list was accessibility. And I have to say that I see... Um, an accessibility statement. I see it as a positive thing when you see an accessibility statement. Yeah. Um, it tells you that the website owner um, actually cares about accessibility um, and that it kind of justifies a link on every page. You know, it shows that it's important. However, although I kind of appreciate the sentiment, I, I actually don't think that necessarily that's the best way of doing it. The trouble is, um, is that when you put the term accessibility statement, you know, here's our accessibility. It kind of smacks of 
arse covering more than anything else. <laughs> you know, the emphasis is on defending the site against those that might criticise it rather than actually helping people with accessibility needs. Because um, let's think about it. When you go to a site and you're disabled, you know, you don't go to the site. If you have some problems accessing the site or whatever, you don't think, hmm, what I need is an accessibility statement that, you know, that tells me why I can't access the site. What you think is, ah, I need help. I'm stuck. So accessibility should sit under a help section that, and it should be written within that context. So instead of being a list of, you know, we are complying, complying to WAI guidelines, whatever, it should say, look, these are the access keys. You can use this link in order to enlarge the text, blah, blah, blah. So it should be written with people's um, uh, needs in mind rather than just kind of to defend a certain position. Um, even mind having a help section, I'm not always sure is such a great idea. Um, because help sections are often the last resort. If all else fails, you turn to help. So perhaps it should be sold as a guided tour or something instead, you know, see, see what features our site's got. I mean, I don't feel so strongly about that, but, you know, it's a thought. Um, yeah, however, whatever it's called, I think it should be, uh, uh, whether it should be on the, the footer or not is another matter. In my opinion, it's too important a thing to leave in the kind of graveyard area yeah. of the site. It, it should get higher priority. But of course, if the footer is turned into something that isn't a graveyard, then perhaps that might be the right place for it. It always will be, though, don't you? Well, no. I think there is stuff that you can do to change the role of the footer and the way the footer is perceived. A bit of JavaScript that forces the page up every time. <laughs> <laughs> that moves the footer to the top. So yeah, this, the footer um, doesn't need to be a dumping ground for road links. It can be more than that. Um, and I would suggest um, some ways of... of the actual, the actual, I think the footer has got more power than we give it credit for. All right? That, it, <laughs> that it's quite an important part of the real estate. And I, I've got three reasons for so this. So where would you dump stuff? The rogue links there. But there will be nowhere to have done stuff. That's the idea. We know that the foot is important for the following reasons. We know that users are confident scrolling, that they do scroll down to the bottom of the page, mm-hmm. right? So that makes it more important than people think the foot is not important because people never see it. Well, they do. The footer uh, also appears at the end of the content and can act as a, um, a kind of next action thing. Yeah. So I've read all this page, so what should I do now? Where should I go now? So it's kind of important as uh, after it related links down the bottom. Yeah, because you, you're scanning down and you come to it, um, and also it appears on virtually every page, which is you know yeah. there's not many elements that do that. So the footer can be really important. The problem is that historically footers have been limited to a single line of unattractive text. Yes. Who says it should be like that? There's yeah. no reason for that. I'm going to keep looking at you like I'm going to say something to stop you taking a drink from your coffee. Oh uh, yeah, Marcus, what do you think of that? <laughs> it's good I can see when you're trying to sneak a drink now um, uh, a growing number of sites demonstrate that actually we can be free from those artificial constraints and you can uh, it can uh, make the footer a powerful navigational aid it can provide quick links to killer content or it can upsell and cross sell on e-commerce sites you could make the footer really big it doesn't need to be this tiny strip with a few links in it mm. So I think people need to be more imaginative you in the way they use footers. What's that? Yeah. 
if you made it really big and had lots of cool stuff in it, people would still put a little strip at the bottom. Yeah, underneath there, it. Underneath yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> and you do see that. It does happen. But I would encourage you that when you're designing your site to seriously consider how you can make the footer more than a place where unloved links go to die. Um, and that hopefully you can do some really cool stuff. I think I've talked about that long enough now. I think you have. Paul. Okay, I'll stop. stop. Okay. So joining me today is Gary Marshall, a technology journalist and author and many other good things as well. Hello, Gary. <laughs> Hi, Paul Hayden. Not too bad. Good to have you on the show. We had you on once before, as I remember. Yeah, it was a couple of months ago now, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a little while back. Um, and uh, what I thought would be good today is to get you on to talk um, a kind of in broader terms about writing for the web and writing generally, because obviously that's what you do for a living. That's your sure. job. Um, and so uh, I thought I'd kick off with really a question um, about copywriting and copywriters that, um, you know, do you think personally that um, website owners should be looking to get a professional copywriter in to work on their website rather than doing so themselves? I, I think it depends a lot on the website that you have. Um, so if you're doing something where your, your unique selling point is a fantastic price for a product, then it probably doesn't matter too much what the copy is like. But the, the more important that the text of your site is the more important it is to, to have good text. So for example, if your site is acting as a, as a brochure, then obviously the quality of copy there is, is really, really important. Um, and there's also there's the, the technical side of writing as well, which not so much a copywriter, but more of a technical writer for that. So, you know, product information, frequently asked questions, support, that kind of thing. So, I mean, what, what benefit do you get from getting in somebody that does this professionally in, in, in preference to trying to do it yourself? You know, where... Uh, Where's the real kind of money earner in it, if that makes sense, the return yeah. on investment? Well, it, it, it really depends on what your site's all about. I mean, one of the things that getting professionals to do, it just saves you time the same way you would get somebody in to do stuff around the house because your time is better spent doing what you're good at. Um, but particularly with copywriting, and you get somebody who it, uh, is, is pretty experienced in this, what they're doing isn't so much writing, but it's, it's writing that, that works. So, you know, a good copywriter can say more in a sentence than your average guy could say in, you know, 700 paragraphs, which mm. is one of the reasons that guys in advertising get paid so much, you know, because they come up with these fantastic wee strap lines that lodge in people's minds. Yeah, okay, that's fair enough. I mean, obviously, the the main thing that puts off people from, from getting a copywriter is, is the cost associated with it, and sometimes, it's, you know, it's just prohibitive. Although I have to say, you know, I, I get somewhat confused that, that people can take on, you know, they recognize that they can't do design and they'll get a designer in to do that, but somehow people think they can do copy, which is, is somewhat confusing sometimes. But Yeah, and it's, it's not that expensive. You know, if you're going to have a multi-page, thousand-page website, then, yeah, it's going to cost you a fair whack of cash. Um, but the majority of writers uh, tend to be paid by the word. Oh, okay. Um, so, you know, you, you'll set a rate and you'll, you'll talk about what it is you want to get. And the end result uh, isn't going to be an awful lot of money. You're, you're looking at a couple of hundred quid for a couple of thousand words. It's not a lot. No, I suppose in the grand scheme of things, that isn't much at all, is it? If you think about the amount that people pay for content management systems and design work and usability testing and all those other stuff. Yeah, and 
provided that they are good at what they do. You know, if somebody is going to polish the, the, the text on your website and make what you do sound absolutely fantastic, if that makes the difference between somebody uh, hiring you or not or somebody buying your product or not, then it's paid for itself. Mm. So making the presumption that there are some people out there that, that just aren't in a position to hire a professional copywriter, you know, that's mm, just not, yeah. not an option. What advice would you give somebody kind of starting out in writing copy for their own website? You know, where, where, would, where would you start? What kind of are the, the, the most common mistakes, if you see what I mean? Yeah, the, I think the most common mistakes are thinking from your own point of view rather than your visitor's point of view. I'd, I'd say that is probably the, the worst offense that you can do. Um, and, you know, it's the old moan when you have a frequently asked questions, it's the questions you hope people would ask rather than the ones you actually do ask. Yeah. Um, you, you get an awful lot of people will say things on a website. You know, the, the very first page will be the entire corporate history. And as a visitor, I don't care. I, I don't want to know this stuff. I want to know what are you going to do for me? Why should I hang about here? Mm. So it, it, it needs to be very much put yourself in the customer's shoes and have a look at other websites and see what you like mm. about them and what works on those sites. Um, the other thing that you really need to think about, big style, is search engine optimization. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day who was saying, you know, when we do searches on particular products in particular areas, we just don't come up. We don't feature in the results at all. And I said, well, do any of these words or phrases feature on your site? And the answer was no. <laughs> and that is probably why you're not featuring in the search results, you know. So it might be obvious to you uh, that your search should should come up if you look for, I don't know, web design companies in Brighton. But if you don't have the words web design in Brighton anywhere in your website, it's not going to get indexed by any of the search engines. Mm. Um, and that can be a really difficult one to pull off. Um, you see a lot of bad copywriting that is done purely on the basis of SEO, where they're just trying to get as many different phrases in as they possibly can to try and get it up in the Google rankings. And I, I think that's counterproductive because ultimately you're trying to get humans to read this and if somebody comes to your, your website and it, the whole thing is just stacked with you know all these meaningless phrases that, that don't actually give you any useful information at all then you're just going to go oh, what a waste of time i'm out of here mm. do you think there's a difference between writing for for the web and writing for other mediums or do you yes. think what kind of differences what should people be doing differently the the biggest one is brevity, uh, simply because you're, you're reading on a screen whether, well, you've no control over what sort of screen people are going to be reading on for starters. So I might be looking at it with a Blackberry, you know, they might be using a 22-inch monitor. Um, but it's just web content doesn't lend itself to huge blocks of text and long, long sentences. So you, you need to think much more visually than you do with the, the, the printed page, I think, um, and have, uh, break it up a lot more, a lot more white space. Um, and the way you present it can be important as well. Even just increasing the gap between lines can make a big difference to whether your text looks appealing or not. Mm. Um, and again, work it back from the basis of what is it that your, your visitors are going to want here. So you, you need to really start with that. So I find that bullet pointing is usually a very good way to approach it. So you sit down and say, right, what are people coming to my website for? What is it that they're going to be looking for? And answer that first. And then, by all means, if you've got a bit of spare time, by all means, go into the, the full corporate history and everything you've done in your career and your life. But you know, concentrate on the, the purpose of your site first. Mm. I mean, it strikes me that, that websites, unlike other mediums, aren't, aren't linear. So you have the option to kind of um, start with the kind of very top-level um, brief information and just give the kind of highlight, and then people can dig down to, to more kind of in-depth stuff if they want to. 
Indeed, and I mean one of the things that you see in print a lot is they use uh, pull quotes to draw your attention to a particular bit of, of the the body copy, and mm. it's basically a sales technique. And exactly the same thing works on, on the websites, uh, and, and can be very very effective. It can encourage people to read more. The other thing I would say is try not to link too much in your actual body copy, because every little blue line there is a potential reason for someone to disappear. Um, okay, that's I, interesting. I, I think it, it can get in the way if you if you're trying to engage people. You don't want people to go off on tangents because you've got this short attention span thing going on. Yeah, no, I can accept that. I mean, the other thing as well is that if a page is full of hundreds of links, it makes the the page visually quite difficult to read as well. Indeed, yeah, and avoid things you know like these hover over adverts that oh and, and yeah best websites. You know, because if, if it looks like a link, I expect it to be a link. And if I move my mouse over and just get, you know, find out about hotels in Guatemala or something, I just, oh, it, it instantly away from the website. Mm. I think as well, there's, there's something, I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm told that in journalism school, they teach you that if you're writing for the tabloids, you should basically write on the assumption that your reader is going to be a small child. Yeah. And I, I think that can work with websites as well because it really does focus you on getting the information there quickly, you know, with the minimum of waffle and, and without going off on, on huge tangents. And like the old press release thing as well where you, you have all of the information in the, in the first paragraph and then you kind of expand it as you go along. Yeah. So you should be able to chop from the bottom. So if you've written, I don't know, 500 words, you should be able to chop the bottom 250 off that without losing the sense of what you're doing. Yeah. No, it's good. Okay, so, I mean, websites are one thing, you know, your kind of corporate website and stuff mm. like that, but more and more organizations are starting to use blogs as a method of communicating with their end users. Indeed, yeah. Um, do you think, you know, that there's a difference there? What advice would you give to people that are writing posts for blogs? Uh, be sure that you want to do it in the first place. Yeah. Uh, Jakob Nielsen had quite famously said the other week there that businesses shouldn't blog. Okay. Um, and he, he's being a, a bit of a headline generator there. He doesn't mean no businesses should blog. Um, but it, it can backfire because the nature of blogging is very much off the cuff, very quick reactions to things. And that's fine if it suits your particular kind of business. But if people are coming to your site for in-depth information, then I don't think blogging does suit. Um, because by its very nature, blogging is your most recent thought is going to be at the top. So, you know, if, if you don't have regular readers, it's quite easy to fall into the, the trap of assuming everybody knows the context of what you're talking about. And they might not because you wrote about it three weeks ago, three months ago. Yeah. And that, that's quite a common pitfall, I think. Um, the other thing about blogging is because it is quick and easy, it, it does encourage you maybe not to craft things as well or to think things through. And you've got to remember that this stuff potentially hangs about for eternity. Mm. So um, it might be tempting to, I don't know, slag off the competition or something, um, but it could well come back and bite you uh, later on. So I, I think with blogging, it's back to any sort of writing. You need to know what you're trying to achieve with it. Um, because if you, if you don't have a clear idea of what your blog is going to bring to the website and what benefit it's going to bring to your, your visitors or customers, it's potentially a massive waste of time and effort that you could be spending on something more interesting. Yeah. No, it's not really negative. I don't mean to be <laughs> grumpy today. Um, but I think that there's a lot of times, you know, it's a bit like in the early days of the web when there was all these wonderful doohickeys and logos that you could just slap all over your website. And lots of people did without actually asking, well, is this bringing any benefit to me whatsoever? Um, done well, blogging can be a fantastic thing on a website. Um, and I've seen a few examples of it. And, and all kinds of different things. I was looking, for example, for drum loops for GarageBand. And I was looking at the various uh, drum loop companies. And I found one that the owner's blog. 
and they okay. talk about how how they do the stuff and what they've got coming down the line and um, why they think that they're great and nobody else is and all this kind of stuff. And I really quite warmed to them, and that encouraged me then to have a look on their website, and I spent a bit of time on it and ended up spending money on it. Um, other sites that are just plain old e-commerce things, I really don't care. Yeah. Unless, unless you're doing like a kind of niche market where, I don't know, golfing grandmothers or something, then <laughs> by the very fact that you've got a niche, then people are, are more likely to, to pay attention to what you've got to say. But, you know, I, I don't care if the marketing director of Comet has a blog. But I have no interest in what he's got to say. Um, so adding it to sell like that would be a waste of time. I don't want to see a blog on um, great big faceless ISP.com. Yeah. Whereas like Merchant City Music, which is a music shop in Glasgow, I'd be quite interested in what these guys have got to say. So, you know, we've got some amazing stuff coming in or we were wasting a band last night and they were fantastic. And that kind of making you feel that you're part of a bigger picture can be really effective, particularly with smaller businesses. Yeah. No, good stuff. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think there are a lot of blogs out there that shouldn't be out there. And um, there are also some places that should be blogging that aren't. But uh, yeah, 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 I'd agree with that. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time, Gary. It was um, really good to talk to you again. And no doubt we'll have you back on the show in the future. No doubt. <laughs> and thus ends the 93rd episode of Boagworld.com. And lo, it came to pass that Marcus say, shared his joke. Did you say Lord of the Rings last night? Is that what it is? <laughs> no, I didn't. It does sound very Lord of the Rings esque, doesn't it? In which case, we need to do like five um, false endings to it. Because oh, yeah. in Return of the King, you kept thinking, oh, it's end. Oh, no, it's not. Oh, it's ending. Oh, no, it's not. Well, that's the good thing about reading the book, even though you thought it finished, there were still 300 pages to go. Yeah. <laughs> How can they do it? Yeah. Oh, right, yes, they've all got to go back to the Shire. <laughs> and then yeah. when they got back to the Shire, there was Sauron there. At least they cut that out of the films. Yeah, they did, yeah. yeah. So there you go. Anyway, go on then. What's your joke? I quite like this one. I was almost tempted to leave, to, to leave this one until the 100th episode. but I think, first of all, we just need to say, Ian, although we really appreciate the jokes, making jokes about Pavarotti's death <laughs> is too soon. <laughs> Honestly, carry on. <laughs> I was tempted to tell another one of her then, but no, I won't. Um, right. Why this is about Barry, I don't know. But anyway, Barry returned from a doctor's visit one day and told his wife... Caroline, but the doctor said he only had 24 hours to live. Oh, sad. Wiping away her tears, <clears throat> he asked her to make love with him. Of course, she agreed and they made passionate love. Six hours later, Barry went to her again and said, Honey, now I only have 18 hours left to live. Maybe we could make love again. Caroline agreed and they made love. Later, Barry was getting into bed when he realised that he only had eight hours of life left. He touched Caroline's shoulder and said, Honey, please, just one more time before I die. She agreed, then afterwards she rolled over and fell asleep. Barry, however, heard the clock ticking in his head and he tossed and turned until he was, only, he was down to only four more hours. He tapped his wife on the shoulder to wake her up. Honey, I only have four hours left. Could we? His wife sat up abruptly, abruptly turned to him and said, Listen, Barry, I'm not being funny, but I have to get up in the morning and you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, I think is great. Oh, so Excellent one. Thank you, Ian. Oh, so true. Okay, so that really wraps it up for today's show. Um, except to say, uh, please sign up for the 100th um, Boag World. We would love to see you come down to London and join us for a night. We're going to put loads of money behind the bar. We're going to record a live show. It should be a real giggle. Um, 
you can just turn up if you want to, but we would like some indication of numbers. So if you can, go to upcoming.yahoo.com forward slash event forward slash 224744 and sign up there. It would be much appreciated. And um, yes, I'm sure that Marcus wants to push his paddle at South by Southwest again, but we won't let him and we'll finish the show there. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>